Section 163 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 195. London, February 12, 1754. My dear friend, I take my aim, and let off this letter at you at Berlin. I should be sorry it missed you, because I believe you will read it with as much pleasure as I write it. This is to inform you, that after some difficulties and dangers, your seat in the new Parliament is at last absolutely secured, and that without opposition, or the least necessity of your personal trouble or appearance. This success, I must further inform you, is in great degree owing to Mr. Elliot's friendship to us both, for he brings you in with himself at his surest borough. As it was impossible to act with more zeal and friendship than Mr. Elliot has acted in this whole affair, I desire that you will, by the very next post, write him a letter of thanks, warm and young thanks, not old and cold ones. You may enclose it in yours to me, and I will send it to him, for he is now in Cornwall. Thus being sure of being a senator, I dare say you do not propose to be one of the pedire senatores, a pedibus ire in sententium, for as the House of Commons is the theatre where you must make your fortune and figure in the world, you must resolve to be an actor, and not a persona muta, which is just equivalent to a candle-snuffer upon other theatres. Whoever does not shine there is obscure, insignificant, and contemptible, and you cannot conceive how easy it is for a man of half your sense and knowledge to shine there if he pleases. The receipt to make him a speaker, and an applauded one too, is short and necessary. Take of common sense quantum suffit, add a little application to the rules and orders of the house, throw obvious thoughts in a new light, and make up the whole with a large quantity of purity, correctness, and elegance of style. Take it for granted that by far the greatest part of mankind do neither analyze nor search to the bottom. They are incapable of penetrating deeper than the surface. All have senses to be gratified. Very few have reason to be applied to. Graceful utterance and action please their eyes, elegant diction tickles their ears, but strong reason would be thrown away upon them. I am not only persuaded by theory, but convinced by my experience, that, supposing a certain degree of common sense, what is called a good speaker is as much a mechanic as a good shoemaker, and that the two trades are equally to be learned by the same degree of application. Therefore, for God's sake, let this trade be the principal object of your thoughts, never lose sight of it. Attend minutely to your style, whatever the language you speak or write in. Seek for the best words, and think of the best turns. Whenever you doubt of the propriety or elegance of any word, search the dictionary or some good author for it, or inquire of somebody who is master of that language. And in a little time, propriety and elegance of diction will become so habitual to you, that they will cost you no more trouble." As I have laid this down to be mechanical and attainable by whoever will take the necessary pains, there will be no great vanity in my saying, that I saw the importance of the object so early, and attended to it so young, that it would now cost me more trouble to speak or write ungrammatically, vulgarly, and inelegantly, than ever it did to avoid doing so. The late Lord Bolingbroke, without the least trouble, talked all day long, full as elegantly as he wrote. Why? not by a peculiar gift from heaven, but, as he has often told me himself, by an early and constant attention to his style. The present Solicitor-General, Murray, Editor's Note, created Lord Mansfield in the year 1756, End Editor's Note, 
has less law than many lawyers, but has more practice than any, merely upon account of his eloquence, of which he has a never-failing stream. I remember so long ago as when I was at Cambridge, whenever I read pieces of eloquence, and indeed they were my chief study, whether ancient or modern, I used to write down the shining passages, and then translate them, as well and elegantly as ever I could, if Latin or French, into English, if English into French. This, which I practised for some years, not only improved and formed my style, but imprinted in my mind and memory the best thoughts of the best authors. The trouble was little, but the advantage I have experienced was great. While you are abroad, you can neither have time nor opportunity to read pieces of English or parliamentary eloquence, as I hope you will carefully do when you return. But in the meantime, whenever pieces of French eloquence come in your way, such as the speeches of persons received into the Academy, orations funebres, representations of the several parliaments to the king, etc., read them in that view, in that spirit, observe the harmony, the turn and elegance of the style, examine in what you think it might have been better, and consider in what, had you written it yourself, you might have done worse. Compare the different manners of expressing the same thoughts in different authors, and observe how differently the same things appear in different dresses. Vulgar, coarse, and ill-chosen words will deform and degrade the best thoughts as much as rags and dirt will the best figure. In short, you now know your object, pursue it steadily, and have no digressions that are not relative to, and connected with, the main action. Your success in Parliament will effectually remove all other objections. Either a foreign or a domestic destination will no longer be refused you if you make your way to it through Westminster. I think I may now say that I am quite recovered from my late illness, strength and spirits excepted, which are not yet restored. Aix-la-Chapelle and Spa will, I believe, answer all my purposes. I long to hear an account of your reception at Berlin, which I fancy will be a most gracious one. Adieu. End of section 163. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.